We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. I don't know if you guys, most of you knew this or not, but Anthony and I have known each other for a long time, uh, since before he and Jill got married. How long have you guys been married now? 15 years. So I had hair when I met Anthony, and uh, one of the first times I got to really hang out with him was he was dating Jill. They weren't married yet, and he wanted to take her on a trip for her birthday with a group of friends, and so... The guys piled into my car. I had a little Hyundai accent, this little, we called it uh, grandma gold color, Hyundai accent. And then uh, all the, the ladies got into another car and we took a little road trip. And on the way back, Anthony was driving my car and there was a guy in the backseat who just crashed out the entire five hour drive. He was just sleeping the whole time. And I was like, I got to stay awake for, for Anthony. Like, Dude's driving my car all the way back from this trip, uh, and like I'm, I'm trying to get to know him, and I don't want him to just like be stuck driving with, with two kind of strangers sleeping in the car, and I did the best I could, but I kept crashing out too in the passenger seat, and I felt so bad, and I would like, I'd wake up, and I'd try to like just jump right into conversation, like nothing had happened, right? And so I'd be sleeping, I'd wake up and be like, so how long have you, uh, <laughs> and I'd ask him a question and he'd answer it. I'd fall asleep like midway through his answer. And then I'd wake up again and be like, so tell me about that time that you lived in Chicago again. And he's like, dude, just go to sleep, right? And then we finally made it back uh, to the house where everybody's cars were parked at for us to part ways. And I was like, this guy is never going to want to talk to me again. <laughs> I feel like such a jerk. Uh, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't stay awake at all. And I bring that up because it's kind of, it's kind of what we're going to hear about this morning in the letter to a church called, uh, actually a church that's in a city called Sardis. Sardis. And so turn to Revelation chapter three. We're starting in verse one in chapter three. And what's been going on so far is Jesus has come to this guy, John, who has been following Jesus. He followed Jesus uh, throughout his time here on earth for three years. And then after Jesus died and then rose again and his spirit came and visited them, John and a bunch of other people continued to follow Jesus and his ways. And they tried to tell as many other people about this Jesus as they could and get other people to follow him. And at some point in John's life, we don't know why exactly, but he got sent away to this island called Patmos. And while he's there, he gets this vision sort of. We don't know exactly how, how it came about, but in some way, Jesus appears to him and starts speaking to him. And he gives him a message to share with the rest of the people who are following Jesus and his ways. And so he writes this letter, and the first part of the book of Revelation is addressed to as a letter sent to the churches in the major cities in Asia Minor, which is occupied by Rome. Uh, pretty much the whole known world is occupied by Rome at this time. And the thrust of the message of this book, Revelation, I know it's a weird book for many. Uh, A lot of us have a lot of baggage that we come into when we even just think about the book of Revelation, right? Uh, A lot of times it's even been weaponized. It's been used to just instill fear into people. Uh, There's like weird imagery involved in it. What it is, the whole point of this message is to encourage the people who are following after Jesus 
to remind them not to give in to the powers that are oppressing them through the Roman government, but to trust that Jesus is actually king and he has power and authority over all things and to continue faithfully following in his ways. And so the first part of this, this letter, it gets sent to these major cities in Asia Minor and it hits this little kind of like circuit. So it hits the city of Ephesus first and then it keeps going through and it hits different cities and each of them are getting this letter and they're able to read everybody's mail. So it was written to a specific people then, but also we get to read their mail today because the spirit is still saying something to each of us even here and now. And that's how Jesus closes his words that he has John write down for each city. He ends each one of those little sections to each city with, to those who have ears, let them hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. And we believe the spirit is still speaking to the churches today. Amen. So read with me in Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. Jesus says this, Write to the angel, and remember that word just means messenger. Write to the messenger of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear. Everyone in this room has ears. May we hear your word to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the first sermon I ever preached, I was about 16 years old, and there was this movie out called The Sixth Sense. Anybody familiar with that? All right. It's been about 20 some odd years. So just warning right now, spoiler alert's coming, okay? Uh, But it's been a long time since that movie's been out. And I I had this like message that was prepared around the theme of the movie, because that's kind of what you did back then, right? Like the Matrix came out, every church had a sermon on the Matrix. I don't know why, but it was just what was done. So the idea was in this movie, uh, Bruce Willis, he's visiting this young boy who sees dead people. He sees ghosts everywhere, right? Uh, And there's there's this moment where he says to him, I see dead people. They're all around me and they don't know that they're dead, right? And then the twist of the movie, because this is uh, M. Night Shyamalan, did I say his name right? M. Night Shyamalan, if you're familiar with him, all of his movies have some kind of twist. So the twist, here's a spoiler, is at the end of the movie, you find out Bruce Willis's character, who's kind of like this counselor role with this young boy trying to help him through this issue, turns out he's actually been dead through the whole movie. And so he's one of the dead people that this young boy is seeing, right? And part of it is just this, this way of him being able to move on into the afterlife, so to speak. Weird stuff. If you thought Revelation was weird, right? 
Movies are weird too, so and we're comfortable with those. We sit in those and pay money to see them. So, uh, but that scene right there, that clip, I see dead people all the time. They're all around. They don't know they're dead. Was this like theme I used for the message to basically talk about to the church, like, hey, there's a lot of people out there. They don't have life because they don't have Jesus. They don't even know it though. They think they're living life. They think they're like living their best life now and having a blast, but they don't even know that they're dead. Right? And it was like this like evangelism type of sermon. Like, it's our job to go and like share what real life is with them. Jesus is kind of using the same tactic here, right? The same message. He's not using a silly movie to get his point across, but he's saying the same words, only he's not speaking to people who are outside of the church. He's talking to a group of believers. And he's saying, you don't even realize how dead you are. Right? He's talking to the church. He goes, I know that you have a reputation for being alive. You, you have a name for yourselves of being alive. You have this, this persona, this front that you put on, that everyone around you sees the church in Sardis, and they go, man, if we could be like that church, like they really, they got some life there, you know? Like maybe sometimes, I don't know, we're sitting in here on a Sunday and like nobody's clapping or putting their hands up. And you're like, I want, there's this other church I visited and like everybody's shouting, it's crazy. Like that's an alive church, right? Like this is kind of the context is like, we see these other churches struggling, but Sardis, they're alive. They got the spirit there with them. And Jesus goes, I see past that. Now, we don't know the full context of that. We don't know what it is that makes them look alive and why Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I see you're actually dead on the inside. But the point is, the point is that Jesus sees through the facade we put on. Jesus sees right past this mask. And he's seeing something deeper inside of them in their heart. And he's going, listen, spiritually, you are dead but that's not what I want for you. This isn't a a scare tactic thing, right? This isn't Jesus coming and just laying the hammer down on people. This is him appealing to them because he wants them to know the goodness of true life. And he wants them to know it's been offered to you, but you're refusing it. And so Jesus starts the letter with this. He says, hey, I'm the one who has the seven stars and the seven spirits. And we hear that and we go, what does that mean? But we got to remember, uh, most of these weird images in Revelation are usually either rooted in Old Testament language, so they would have known what these words meant, or if not, he will flat out tell you what it means. And in Revelation 1, he flat out tells us the seven stars. He says, the mystery of the seven stars is this, it's, it's the church. We talked about this last week that in ancient Hebrew culture and in much of the ancient Near Eastern world at this time, uh, the numbers weren't just for mathematics alone, but they had a deeper significance. They had a meaning to them, right? And so that number seven meant wholeness or completion. And so though Jesus is sending a message to seven specific cities where the church is, he picks seven on purpose because what he's saying is this is for the church, right? And when he says that he's, holding uh, the seven stars, he's speaking of the churches represented in that, the fullness of the church. And so in Revelation 1, he, he kind of peels back the curtain and he tells us right there, this is what this means. I'm speaking to the church here, right? But what are the seven spirits of God? 
why are there seven? Hold on a second. Like, I've been reading my Bible, and the whole time I've heard about the Spirit of God, and now you're telling me there's seven? Are there six more? Are these a seven different? Are these a seven lesser than spirits of God? Which one's the Holy Spirit? What's going on here, right? And so that could get super confusing for people. Remember that number seven, meaning the fullness of. And so turn with me to Revelation 1 real quick, just so we can make sure we're getting this right. And when Jesus is being introduced, he says this, John introducing this letter, talking about who's giving it to him, who's saying this letter, uh, says this, verse four. To the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come. Then he says, and from the seven spirits before his throne. And then he says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. We have three, three different people mentioned there. Who do you think it's talking about? The Hebrews would have known, or the the people now who are uh, Gentiles, Greeks, brought into this faith would know. The one who is and was and is to come is speaking of Yahweh, speaking of God, the Lord, right? Jesus, well, we know who that is. This is the one who they're claiming is the son of God, one come from God, the fullness of God dwelling in him, and yet he came as a human to unite humanity back with God again. So you got the Father, you got the Son, who's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, right? Here's a helpful tool. The actual original word there in that Greek is not the seven spirits of, but it's actually better translated as the sevenfold spirit of. And some of your translations might actually say that. The sevenfold spirit of God. So what it's saying is the fullness of God's spirit. So that's laid out for us in chapter one. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm coming with the sevenfold spirit of God, it's the same word used in chapter three, and the seven stars representing the seven churches, what he's saying is Jesus has the fullness of God's spirit and coming as a human to represent humanity, to restore humanity into God's presence he also has the fullness of humans who are following after God's ways. He's holding them together, and Jesus' goal is to bring them together and unite them. This is why Jesus, who is one with God, one with the Spirit, also says that he is the groom and the church is the bride. And what does Scripture tell us about a bride and a groom? That they become one together. Jesus uniting with humanity, becoming one himself, so that he could also unite us with the spirit of God that he's united with. The whole point of this introduction, remember every introduction to all seven churches is very, uh, it's, it's specific to those people and what they need to hear. And the point of this introduction is to say, I want to reunite you with the spirit of God's presence. Why does that matter? Because he said, you're dead. And I want to give you life. And where does life come from? Kids in the room, do you remember at the beginning of the story of the Bible? Thanks for shouting that out. Jesus, yeah, good answer. It's a good Sunday answer. Anytime you don't know an answer, just say Jesus and you're right. But let's get more specific, right? Uh, At the beginning of the story of the Bible in creation, when God forms the first 
person out of the mud of the ground and he forms it with his own hands, how does that mud clay-like thing become an actually living being? What does God do? You just say Jesus. Yeah, no, no let's, 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 let's think through this. Sam, what does God do? Yes, he, he forms this thing in his own image to reflect him. And then after he forms with his hands, what does he then do? Liam? Yes, yes. Yeah, you got the dirt, the dirt of the ground, and it says that there's water there springing up from the ground. So now you got mud, right? And so he sculpts this mud clay thing, and then he breathes his own breath. And we've talked about this, how that word there for breath is the same word for spirit in the Hebrew. He breathes his own spirit into this bag of clay. And it has life. And Jesus is saying, I, who have come with the fullness of the spirit of God, want to give you that life. The fact that this letter is being written tells us that they're not dead in in the final sense that we think about death, right? Do you guys, uh, another movie reference, The Princess Bride. This is going to take an older generation uh, for us to get this reference right. But there's a guy named Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal. And someone's brought to his door. And they're like, what are we going to do? He's dead. And he goes, ah, you think you're so smart. But what you don't realize is he is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is somewhat alive. Right? So that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is saying, you're only mostly dead. (laughs) There's still a chance. Do you remember when Jesus was told that this guy's daughter was dead, right? Or she was sick and she was dying. And so Jesus kind of hangs back and waits before he goes and visits and then she's dead by the time he gets to her. And he goes, hey, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And everybody starts laughing and mocking him, right? But he goes into the house and he says, little girl, get up. And this girl who is dead, her body had no breath, is filled with breath and filled with life. And she gets up and she walks out of that room and everyone's amazed. That's why Jesus could say, no, no, she's only sleeping. When we think of death, we think of like a timeline and it's the last stop, right? It's finality. But actually, Jesus just kind of equates that with being asleep. Because just like Jesus went to physical death and he laid in a tomb for three days, he got back up and he walked out of that grave. That wasn't the last stop. Jesus is saying those who fall into that kind of sleep, that death can be brought back to life. But he's talking about when scripture talks about death, it's talking about something much more significant. In the beginning, in the garden, if you remember the rest of that story, right? After God makes that human, breathes his own life into it, he tells him, hey, don't do this one thing. Like you could have free reign over this beautiful earth I gave you, but don't do this one thing or you will die. And he says this, he says, the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Now just think about that for a second. When 
the first man and the first woman ate this fruit from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they thought this is going to give us the power we want, the understanding we want, and we could be above God. We don't need him to tell us how to live our lives anymore, right? That's the, the why, that's the reason, the way it was leading to death. And when they ate from it, did they die that day in the way that we think of death? They lived for many years after that. But what happened that very day? They were sent away from the garden, weren't they? They were exiled from God's presence and from where the tree of life was. And I think a lot of times we try to go, well, I, you know, days and timelines are different for God than they are for us to try to explain that. But no, 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 no. He's talking about a more significant spiritual dying that happened that day. For, for this language in the Bible, death is being cut off from the giver of life. It's being cut off from God himself. So Jesus is writing this letter to this church and he's saying, you are faking the funk. You're putting on a good show. Everybody sees you. They think, wow, this this group, they have it together. That's great. But you are cutting yourselves off from the very presence of the one who offers to give you life. We could show up on a Sunday, right? And we could put on a good face or we could hang out with our missional community throughout the week and we could do these acts of service in our own strength and muster it up, right? And then when people are gone, we just kind of let the belt loose and let it all out, right? And, and, and like the anger comes out, the sadness comes out when no one else is around to see it. And we look really good when other people are around watching us. The bitterness comes out when no one's around. The jealousy comes out. How come my life isn't like this person's life on Instagram? When no one else is around. But we put on a good show. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to offer you something better. I hold the fullness of the spirit of God and the fullness of those who would trust in me. And I'm reuniting them together as one. So then he kind of like shifts imagery a little bit, right? He says this, he goes, there's some of you, there's some of you who aren't walking in that way. You, you aren't just putting on a good show and you're dead on the inside. There's some of you who are actually holding true and, and you are trusting in the spirit of God within you. And he says this, he says, it's like you're walking around in fine white clothes. They're not being soiled by the dirt. No, they didn't have like tied uh, pods back then, right? They didn't have like bleach, right? He's not talking about your actual clothes. He's, he's changing this imagery here to give him a picture of you can walk through the dirt and the mess of this life and be unstained by it. Not because they're perfect people who got it all figured out, but in the context of this letter, he's saying because they are filled with the spirit of God because they are trusting in the presence of God in his life, his breath, what Jesus has done to breathe new life into them more than they are giving into the things of the world around them. And not just in their actions when other people are looking, but even in their thought life, even, even in the moments when they're by themselves, 
the deepest, darkest parts of them that no one else sees. It's not that they never wrestle with that, right? It's not that they, they never struggle. But ultimately, they are holding on to this truth that has been given to them. This is what Jesus then calls everyone else around them to do. He says, not only, hey, wake up, be on guard, right? You've been spiritually dead, you're asleep. Wake up, like he says to the little girl. Be alert. Then he calls them to remember what has been given to you. You're only mostly dead. That's still slightly alive. Wake up. Remember. Remember what it is that gave you life. And hold on to that. Hold on to it. Fight to believe it, even in the darkest moments of this world. And then he says this, and repent. He gives five commands. Wake up. Be alert. It's kind of like in the the other garden, in Jesus' last days walking this earth, called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be betrayed, and he's out there, and he's praying. He knows what's coming. He knows he's about to go to a brutal death. And he asks his friends, his followers, hey, would you stay awake and pray with me? And just like that drive on our road trip with Anthony, they're like, yeah, yeah, we want to. And then they would just fall asleep. And Jesus would wake them up. Hey, could, could you please just stay awake with me? I, I need your friendship right now. Can you imagine like Jesus put himself as a human in this space of needing his friends? They're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, we'll, we'll try to stay awake with you. And then they crash again, they fall asleep. And this happens three times. Jesus is now saying to us, would you wake up? And would you be alert on watch with me? Would you see what I'm doing in the world? And would you come and join me in it? Wake up, be alert, right? Be on guard, on watch. Remember, that's the third one, remember. In that moment in the garden, like his, his disciples needed to remember everything Jesus had taught them over the last three years. And the fact that he told them he was going to have to go to his death. But to also remember, especially when he was being crucified, that he also told them he would rise again that he would conquer sin and death and Satan once and for all. Remember the good news that has come to you. Remember the life that's been offered to you. Fourth thing, hold on to it. There is this uh, TV show, this cartoon I used to watch when I was a kid called Bobby's World. Howie Mandel, you guys remember Bobby's World? Kids, you can probably find it streaming somewhere these days. Uh, And at the end, it was this cartoon Howie Mandel would voice the characters for, the, the little boy and the dad. And then at the end, he himself would come out like with the cartoon world around him, but like the physical video of him talking. And he would give some kind of little like message at the end. And there was this one, I remember, because he told me to, and he just said this, he goes, and always remember, because that way you'll never forget. And that stuck with me for some reason. Uh, because you think he's gonna say, and always remember, and then he'll give you some kind of like sage advice or whatever. But he's just saying, no, no, always remember so you don't forget because that's the opposite. Uh, And that's kind of this. It's like, hey, we are forgetful people. We just are. We've seen that throughout the story of scripture. 
Israel over and over and over again, forgetting what God had done to rescue them out of slavery in Egypt and God constantly having to remind them, God sending prophets to remind them, having the psalmists write down so that they would keep the Psalms with them when they weren't in the promised land and near the temple and with the scrolls so that they could remember these songs to remind themselves how God had rescued them. And the early Christian church was no different. And the face of the Roman empire being in charge of everything and telling them how to live their lives, they were forgetful of what Jesus had done. And today, we're not much different either. In the face of the world we live in and all the things that seem to be at play and the the powers that are in our face and the distractions and the temptations and the promises, we forget what Jesus has done for us. Wake up. Be alert, remember, and fight to hold on to what Jesus has done for you. And that fifth and final one, repent. Do kids know what repent means? What does it mean? Yeah, okay, I love that. He gave us three steps for that, just like a preacher would. He says, look on your sins, confess them, and turn to God. That word repent literally means to turn away from. But what I love that he just said right there is he's given us the key. We're not just turning away from our sins, but we're turning toward God. We're turning toward trusting Jesus. We're turning toward following him in his ways. We are turning toward being filled with life through the spirit within us. Next week, we're gonna hear the second to last letter in these churches in Revelation. It's a letter to Philadelphia, not where the eagles play, not where the cheesesteaks are, uh, but the city in Asia Minor, Philadelphia, who was known for their love for one another. There's no confrontation Jesus has with that church. I'm sure they weren't perfect, but he has nothing bad to say to them because they loved one another and they loved others well. How do you do that? Because you're filled with the life and the love of God within you. So this, this letter to Sardis, Philadelphia would have gotten to. And this letter to Philadelphia, Sardis would have gotten to. And they would have seen this contrast between the two. You seem alive. You're doing all this stuff on the outside. But where is the life and where's the love? Church, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus says people will know we're his by our love for one another. When we're filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we will care for one another and we will care for the world around us who doesn't know that they're dead also. But we need to hold on to the truth of that life in order to offer it to anyone else. Amen? Let's pray.